Please join me today in welcoming a financial strategist and a leading private equity sponsor, Omar Khan, a principal at Boardwalk Wealth. Omar has advised on capital financing and M&A transactions worth over $3 billion. With over a decade of investing experience across real estate and commodities, Omar has successfully closed on over $450 million of real estate assets across Texas, Georgia, Florida, and South Dakota. Omar's knowledge and experience are an invaluable asset to our discussions today. But before we get started, if you're like the majority of high net worth individuals focused on preserving your capital and building your wealth in real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call now. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Omar Khan. Omar, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, brother. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, so... Omar is definitely in the multifamily space. Um, you know, he's all over social media and I knew of him, um, but I had his business partner on, uh, Dustin Hendrickson, episode 163. And he, he was like, look, Omar's in Dallas. You're in Dallas. You guys should meet up. And so we did. And I, and I loved what he had to say and what he was doing. So um, asked him to come on the podcast. So with that, um, can you share a little bit with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Uh, so look, uh, I don't know about the investment part because we've got a lot of investment, but as a company, we're, we're running our own projects. I think we've done about 15, 16 projects, give or take, maybe 17. Somewhere in the 15 to 20 range, right? It's a combination of acquisitions and developments uh, across Texas, Georgia, Florida, and South Dakota. Uh, the reason is has always been very simple for us. We invest a good portion of our own money. That's basically how this started. And uh, for us, the whole idea is, hey, where can we be opportunistic? Because very early on, I realized um, coming from the investment banking world and every and you know families and business that it pays to be opportunistic. At least if you're investing your own money versus you know, programmatic. Programmatic is, hey, I got to buy six deals a year or ten deals a year, right? Whereas opportunistic means. I'm going to wait for that fat pitch to happen, like that fat, juicy pitch to happen. And sometimes this means you do like two or three deals in two or three months. And then you basically have to teach yourself on how to sit on your ass for like six months. and not So a Be lot impatient, of it, right? 
Yeah, but a lot of this, like a lot of times, like my wife's a physician, right? So when I meet her friends and, you know, when they talk about their work, a lot of that work revolves around uh, intelligence of some kind, right? Like actual, like you can see that intelligence. A lot of our work revolves around EQ, just learning how to sit on your ass and not do dumb things as opposed to doing very intelligent things, right? So our business is Easy in theory, but hard in practice. Easy in the sense that you don't need a PhD to do this. In fact, if you have a PhD, you might not be able to do this. You might overthink the entire process. But hard, because it's very hard, because you get itchy fingers, right? And you're like, look, I can do this, I can make more money, I just need to trust myself, think positive, all that BS you hear about. Uh, so learning to sit on your ass is, is a learned trait that we're all trying to master. Absolutely, that, that is a tough one. Is it? When everybody is is active, to to sit back and do nothing is is very difficult. So you talked about markets: uh, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and South Dakota. Look, Texas, Florida, Georgia. I've talked about those markets for for ages. They're growth markets. They're tenant front, you know, landlord friendly. They're um, they got population growth, income growth, job growth. But South Dakota. That one's a surprising one. So can you talk about why you like South Dakota? Well, first of all, let me start and tell you, Texas and Florida are not growth-oriented markets now, and they haven't been for the past year. It's very easy to raise money for Texas and Florida projects. Because, you know, look, I live in Dallas. I love Texas. I wish I could do more projects in Texas. I'm in Florida. I wish I could do more projects in Florida. That makes sense. Texas, between your rising costs of taxes, which are increasing at a various crazy pace, you live here, you know this, right? Insurance going through the roof, your rent growth being tepid at best, right? Texas is where a lot of people's dreams are dying right now. There is just no margin in the business. But if you're not in the business, it's very easy to raise money for a Texas deal because, you know, Texas seems to be a place a lot of people are moving. But from a business point of view, the margin is next to zero. The only way people are going to make money in Texas is if they're going to hold on for like seven, 10 years right now, if they're buying deals today, right? If you're buying deals in Houston or Austin right now, and I'm not saying that one-off deal somebody bought, right? We're talking like you're a player in that market, right? You're buying multiple deals over a period of time. Yeah, you are going to be in for a world of hurt, which is, by the way, already happening with a lot of big Texas indicators. Same with Florida. The issue with Florida is in Texas, taxes are very high, followed by insurance, and then payroll costs are getting really up, whereas your revenue isn't growing that much. The problem in Florida is the revenue growth similar to Texas is stalling, but your insurance costs are through the roof. I mean, guys had insurance like at five, six, seven hundred a unit, say a year and a half ago, their unit their insurance is now renewing for twenty five hundred to three thousand a unit. I mean, think about what a sea change it is, right? So if you've got, say, a 200-unit building and your insurance costs went up by $1,500 a unit, let's do the math, 200, 200 times 1,500, that's $300,000, right? That's $300,000 that your cash flow just went down by if you had cash flow at all because of rising interest rates. So there as well, the issue is from the outside, it looks like it's a very nice market. And by the way, it is. It's just that the cost structure in our line of work like not other lines of work. In our line of work, the cost structure has escalated so much that deals are not penciling out, basically. So outside Texas and Florida looks really nice, but if you're in the business, you know that these are very low margin places, but raising money is very uh, easy to do it in these markets. That's why a lot of people do it. The case for South Dakota, by the way, most of the Midwest, 
is the same case it's always been. Dreams don't go to die there. You will, you are steady at the markets, you build a portfolio there. It's not your entire portfolio. Because think about it this way, right? You don't want to build an entire portfolio of just fixed rate, fixed income, basically, right? Because then you never get the upside. So you build a portfolio, a very strong, very steady at the product. We're developing all of our product in South Dakota. It's got no tax, no state income tax. One of the most landlord friendly uh, places basically in the country. None of this stupid thing about, you know, somebody owes you money and you can't evict that person. You have to apologize to that person because they owe you the money, right? None of that stuff. Property rights are with him. You still, because there is not a glut of institutional money coming, it's slowly, we're seeing in the past three years, it's gone up by a lot. So we're still getting very good favorable financing. And look, just to give you an idea, our cost of development there right now, new development, all new product, is between 140 to about 145,000 a unit, give or take, cost of development. There is nobody in Dallas, Austin, Florida, anywhere, which can build to that cost. And again, that's not because we are intelligent and those people are stupid. It's just that every market has a different cost structure, right? But the difference is that your rents aren't really that different. As an example, the product we delivered, I don't know when you were there, did you sleep blue on the rain? Did Dustin take you there, yes. right? Yep. Yeah, right? So the two bedroom, two baths over there, which is on the top floor, we're getting anywhere from like 26 to $2,800 a month in wow. rent. That's, that's right? great. I mean, you see, it's a nice apartment, but it's not like you didn't walk into like the Taj Mahal. I mean, it's a nice apartment, no, right? It, I mean, it's a nice, it's definitely a nice new development, right? Right on a, you know, right on a lake and. Yeah, but it's know, not like the Eiffel Tower, right? It's yeah, not an Eiffel no. Tower. It's not like a landmark for humanity, right? But what I'm trying to say is while your costs of construction are a lot lower, right. your rents aren't that behind. So eventually it's all a math issue, right? How much can you produce? How much can you rent at? Or how much you develop? How much you rent at? Or how much can you acquire? Because we do value add as well. And how much can you rent at? So that margin is still there. And every business, whether look, it's our business, whether it's retail, whether it's fashion, whether it's industrial, every business basically is, well, how much margin do I have in my business? Because margin allows you the comfort when things go bad, you know, you can stay, right? I mean, it gives you right. staying so the margin is still there. That's why we're continuing to develop because math it's makes It's interesting because, uh, you know, I was going to ask you how to invest in today's market. And I think that you kind of answered it is, is you go to markets where the, where the math still works. Yeah. But look, Darren, you, a, a lot of listeners that are investors, what they don't realize is that the dirty secret is that like, I, by the way, I've had this pushback. I don't get this anymore. When I was going to South Dakota, Right, and by the way, it took me, my partners presenting all the data and convincing me for a good year before even I could convince myself, right? Because I was thinking, well, do I really kind of want to go there? The fact of the matter is if you're an investor, you are going to be mentally more comfortable investing in Texas or Florida. Look, I have properties there. I wish I could do more business there because it's way easier for me. It's easy to raise money. It's easy because I like going there. The issue basically, there's no margin. So sponsors are not going to tell you that because it's like asking a barber, do you need a haircut? The answer is yes. So let me, let me ask you this. Um, so in today's market, I agree with everything you said. I mean, in terms of cost structure, um, you know, insurance rates, whatnot. I used to live in Florida. I've been in Dallas now for like 14 years, but 
I remember in Florida, you know, after a big hurricane came through, insurance rates like doubled. And, you know, and so on our house, all of a sudden insurance rates doubled on, you know, on commercial property, on multifamily property, everything, everything, insurance rates went crazy. And a lot of insurance carriers were pulling out of Florida. And so for that year, which I would, you know, say is comparable to what we're, we're going on, you know, 2022 and 2023, a lot, there was scarcity of good, affordable insurance. But then over time, what happened was more insurance carriers started to come back into Florida and then rates started to come back down. So with that, do you see some of these growth markets? I'm still calling them growth markets because of population growth. But um, if those insurance rates start coming back down and the numbers start penciling, that those markets start to become attractive again? Hey, numbers pencil, you should just shut up and buy it. It's a math problem. Everybody seems to have this idea in their head that somehow real estate is a special little snowflake. Real estate is no different as a business than any other business as an example, right? If the numbers work, you should go do it. If the numbers don't, as an example, it's not like people in oil and gas or manufacturing say, well, the numbers don't really work, but I really love oil and gas. I'm gonna do an unprofitable project. Nobody says that. So the same math people in oil and gas, manufacturing, fashion, retail, consumer products do, same math applies to real estate. Real estate people somehow have it in their head that real estate is a special little snowflake. So if the numbers work, yeah, go ahead and do it. The problem is 20 years ago, uh, when you know this, uh, the last bout of this thing started happening, what we didn't have was one in a 5,000 year event happening every year in Texas, every year in Florida, every year in California, every year in Oregon, every year on the East Coast. The problem now is all these one in a five or 10,000 year events have started happening because of climate issues and look, whatever your position there is, these are happening, right? So because these are happening, insurers are taking a massive hit on their books and they have to recover their money somehow. They're not in the business of losing money. So that's the issue. So if you feel that these are issues, climate related or otherwise, that are going to, it's a cycle, right? I mean. Right now, we're, we have a lot of this, but maybe five years from now, we're not gonna have a lot of this. Then, yeah, it could work. Or conversely, what could happen is, these insurance issues could exist, the market could reprice at a significantly lower price, but just because you know people take a bath, and then you have a significantly low price, and then you factor these in, and these things still work. But as of today, and say in the next six months or so, where things are going, prices are at such a level where, when you price all of these things as a new buyer, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but if prices go down, your insurance costs could still right, be up, your taxes could still, could still be up. Right. Exactly. So what, what's your take on, right now, there's a massive affordability gap, right? So, you know, with interest rates at seven and a half, eight percent to buy a house compared to renting, there's there's a huge gap. So. What do you see happening? In, in my mind, either residential real estate has to come down to, to look, minimize that gap between renting or rents have to go up or so, something. Somehow that gap has to get squeezed. So what, what's your take on that? Uh, look, I feel uh, I can look at our portfolio. I can look at all the other guys that I know that are running sizable portfolios. Uh, rent growth is practically non-existent right now. 
And again, when I say that, what I mean is markets like a Dallas or a Phoenix or a, you know, these types of darling markets sort of deal. Rent is non-existent right now and foreseeable future rent growth and foreseeable future, I mean, six months to a year because I don't have that much intelligence looking forward. Otherwise, I'd be really rich and not in real estate. So six months to a year, I do not feel like this situation is going to improve because part of this equation also is our incomes rising. Because look, we can try to, I would love to get two, three, $500 more in rents. But if my resident base does not have incomes that help them pay that rent, then they might come in, they might pay that rent for like, I don't know, six months. And then the last six months, it's all gonna be a struggle if not, if not we have a massive bad debt. So while I do feel conceptually, rents should go up, your renter base does not have the power to pay more rents in the current situation. So our personal beliefs have no, no bearing so on what's going on. Does the affordability gap stand or does one move? It's going to become much worse, but your fact of the matter is, I believe what people might start doing now is shack. So if you have say a two bedroom, you might have four people living in that two bedroom to pay the same rent. So your rents might not go up. It's just that you will have more wear and tear on your property and more people will that's, shack That's up interesting. You know, on the, on the residential side, I've heard, um, People talk about, and, and they've already started doing it in, in high cost markets like San Francisco or wherever that, um, where they have maybe a single family house, five bedrooms, and they have five different people renting by the bedroom. Yeah, San Francisco is just a different beast, man. Like my sister lives there in the Bay Area. I just don't even understand how even people that make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, they live there and can do the rest of the stuff in their lives. Right. So I San Francisco is just a totally different beast. But look, this happens all the time. This is why I have to chuckle when I'm reading syndicators uh, investment packages saying, oh, we're going to renovate and uh, we're going to get four hundred dollars more a month in premium. I'm like, OK, like money doesn't fall from the sky. So let's see what happens. And then six months later or a year later, you see their DSCRs, which is debt service coverage ratio for the people that don't know. The debt service coverage ratio is like 0 0.55, 0 0.75, which means for every $1 in obligations, they only have say 55 to 75 cents to pay those obligations. So in effect, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Because again, anything can look good on paper. Anything can go look on Excel. You know this, right? You're a trader. Anything can go look if you just put the right inputs in, but that's only half the battle. Reality doesn't have to conform to my version of whatever's in my spreadsheet. All right, so the that's other side, another a huge cost component is interest rates, right? So interest rates have, have gone up dramatically, right? So what happened, and, and People are struggling with that service coverage ratio because of that. There's a ton of liquidity on the sidelines looking to jump in and you know get stuck get deals on the on the cheap. What is your take on, you know, obviously you don't know what's gonna happen interest rates wise, but if interest rates go down, then that helps syndicators, it helps properties. Well, that depends on the timing and how much do they go down. So think about it this way. So let's pull up the 10-year treasury, right? Because I look at that every day. More, okay, so the reason why I'm pulling up the 10-year treasury, for those that don't know, most loans for agency debt are priced off the 10-year treasury. So what you have is a 10-year treasury, which is the United States government's 10-year treasury rate, 
plus the spread on top. The spread is to account for the riskiness of the loan so that the lender can make some money. Darren knows about this. I was just trying to fill in the gaps for listeners. Right now, as of we're looking at it on uh, the 7th of November at 1034 Central, the 10-year treasury is 4.585. So let's put it this way. If it doesn't go to say, my opinion is that if it doesn't go, if it goes from 4.5 to 4.4, right? It kind of stays there for the next three, four, five months. You're not going to get any help because it's not like the last 15, 20 bits are going to help you. But if it goes from say a four point, what is it? 5.8 to a 3.9, well, that is a material drop down in the next three to six months. And that might help. So while, yeah, rates going down is a net benefit to a borrower, as an example, because you have to pay less money. The fact of the matter is rates have escalated at such a pace that unless there is a material dip down, a significant material dip, we're talking 75 basis to 100 basis points, it's not going to help. You're just plugging all the holes in your boat that's sinking, basically. You can plug one hole, but if the water is coming in like that, it doesn't help you. And my personal view is that while rates might come down, and this is a problem that affects everyone in the industry, so I'm not trying to be holier than thou here. While rates might come down, they might not come down in time to help as many people as we think they might. And by as many people, I, I mean like people are sponsors and developers like myself, not right. the general populace. What, what about, um, you know, in today's market, value-add versus new development? You, you talked a lot about South Dakota and new development, is that kind of where your mindset is? Is that that's, that's the right play in today's market? Guys, let me tell you what every single lender will tell you. Sponsors might not clearly spell it out for you because they have an incentive to not clearly spell it. There is no lender right now that is buying the value add story. Zero, not one, not two. Zero out of all the lenders are buying the value add story. There is a reason for that. Lenders are not stupid. Lenders, we might be doing one or two or four projects a year. Lenders do four projects before lunch. Nobody's buying the story. The reason why nobody's buying the story is because you have zero to negative rent growth across all major markets. Your insurance costs have skyrocketed across the country. This is not a Texas or Florida thing. Generally, they skyrocketed. Texas and Florida happen to be the biggest uh, states affected. Your payroll costs are through the roof. Your taxes are through the roof. Why are taxes through the roof? Well, when if people are flipping properties every year and making 2x the money, the value, as in the market value of that property has gone up, right? So if the market value of that property has gone up, the tax assessor is not stupid. They are going to reprice their assessment close to the new market value. So your taxes are going to go up. But compounding all of these problems is your revenue isn't going up. So if your expenses keep going up, your payroll, repairs and maintenance and turnover are a thing we haven't even talked. The cost of repairing units used to be five, six years ago, you could put lipstick on a pig, 5,000 a unit, you get a brand spanking new apartment. Like, looks nice, right? It doesn't have, don't look underneath the surface. On top, it looks nice, right? Yeah, you can't do that stuff for less than 10 grand now. We see this everywhere. When you go to the grocery store, you know that the price of food has gone up. It's not like the food price has gone up in isolation, but everything else hasn't gone up. 
So your cost of repairs and maintenance goes up. Your cost of turnovers goes up. Your cost of payroll goes up. Your cost of insurance, your cost of real estate taxes go up. But your revenues have not gone up there. And we're not even there at the interest case. We're just at the operating level. So when all of these things have gone up, your insurers are not, you're sorry, your lenders are not stupid. They're not buying this. So this is why, while for me personally, it is way easier to do a value add project. We've got our teams in place. We literally have to press two buttons and that all the pieces start falling into place. There is just zero opportunity there. So a lot of the syndicators, they're not in development. They don't have other lines of work. They don't have other lines of revenue. So what are they going to tell you as an investor? They are going to come to you and tell you, oh, this is a great project. I literally know guys right now, very big groups. Leverage is lower. Market conditions are worse, but on paper, their returns have not gone down. It's still 2x return you can make in five years. How is that possible when, I mean, big companies, institutional companies can't do this work and their cost of financing is lower and their overall costs are lower. So the value add story, while it's a very good story, there's going to be pockets of opportunity. Systematically, that story is not existent right now because not just for operating reasons, but also for cost of financing reasons. Because you could have all these operating issues that you have, and if your rates were say 0% or 1% or 2%, you could still kind of find your way around it. Now the problem is, your rates are like seven to 10% minimum. So on top of paying more for everything and not getting enough income, you're also having to pay your lender significantly more. So where is the margin going to go? And what most syndicators do is they'll overraise money. So if they need 10 million, they'll overraise and raise $12 million. They keep paying their investors back a little bit at a time. So the investors think that they're getting paid a return. But in reality, the property isn't performing. And that game only works for a little time. Like before this podcast, Darren and I were talking that people that confront their problems head on, by the way, developers, syndicators, whatever, those people are going to be given a lot of leeway by lenders and even by their investors, I feel. But people that push things under their carpet, they keep telling you that it's really good, just give me your money, and it feels good to hear positive news in a sea of negativity. Yeah, the problem becomes those little things that they push under the carpet are going to become big monsters later on. So they, the value add story is non-existent right now. This is why we're doing developments, not because developments are easier, because that's where the value is. But say a year from now, six months from now, two years from now, if pricing goes really down, we're gonna do more value add. But right now that story does not exist. So what about the risk on new development that you take two years to build it and then there's not enough absorption? So you can't, you can't lease it up. Oh yeah. So number one, before you even get there, the biggest risk is execution risk. Are you picking the right team that is going to be able to build the damn thing? We, I personally know of a few big syndicators out of California and a couple of guys out of the East Coast uh, that did not have the right team in place, that picked the wrong markets like Austin and Phoenix and all of Tampa's, and then they got stuck and they, they have projects in Utah and they have projects that have, they have been developing for three years and nothing's really happened. So before you even get to the absorption stage, the biggest risk for you as an investor is to figure out, can this team actually even do this? Can they even develop this thing? Then you get to the absorption stage. And the absorption stage, by the way, 
is also factoring into many factors like, have you picked the right markets? Do you have enough term left on your debt? So to give you an example on the Veltites or Blue on the Rain as an example, it took us about 20 to 22 months to develop that product. Even if we have absorption risk in the market, which we don't because we delivered it in like mid-September and it's like the 7th of November right now. So we're pre-leased 60%. So in about two months, we're pre-leased 60% of the property. So absorption is not an issue, but let's assume absorption, God forbid, was an issue. We developed that property in about 20 to 22 months. The term on our debt is 60 months. We still have 38 months to go figure out our shit. But if it's gonna take you about 18 to 22 months to develop and your loan is due in two years, which the vast majority of these developers have, you're gonna be in for a world of hurt, even if you don't have absorption issues. So there's a lot of technical issues before you even get to absorption that you have to account for as an investor. And this is why I keep telling people, look, if you just listen to what a syndicator or a developer, or by the way, anybody who wants your money, right? If you just listen to everything they say, they'll keep telling you that money grows on trees and trees grow to the sky forever. But this is where doing your due diligence, this is where being thoughtful, this is where taking the time and knowing money is not burning a hole in your pocket. Take the time, learn about the people. It's all about the people. If you do that, 99% of your problems are gonna be solved. That goes back to what you were saying before in terms of, you know, being patient and sitting, you know, sitting on your tail because two years ago, which is the majority of the loans that are in trouble right now, it was all bridge debt, floating rate, bridge date. That was the only way to make the deals pencil. And, you know, some people including myself, I've got, I'm in a few deals that have floating rate loans. And, you know, for me, I, I, I knew that there was a risk that rates could go up, but I never, ever thought that it would go up this fast, this, you know, this quickly. Um, but that was the only way to, for people to do deals back then. You know, I would have much rather done five-year fixed rate debt, but none of the deals were doing, doing that. But you would never have been able to, yeah, but none of those deals would have priced right. if you were at five years. Exactly. Right so it, it's, it's, it's difficult. So um, what about all the money on the sidelines? You think that they, that money on the sidelines um, is all going to come into opportunistic, you know, troubled scenarios? Or do you think that that money on the sidelines, all of a sudden uh, projects start to become more attractive in that, money on the sidelines starts coming in and bidding up those deals. Look, money on the sidelines is a complete myth, I think, that people tell to make themselves feel comfortable. If you're Blackstone, yeah, there's a lot of dry powder. If you're KKR, Apollo, Brookfield, right? Yeah, there's, there's dry powder. If you're a syndicator out of Dallas, like I am as an example, syndicator out of Phoenix, some guy out of Atlanta, you don't have dry powder. Nobody gives a shit about your deals. Get it through your thick skull, right? It doesn't exist. Number two, look, it's not like this money on the sidelines is suddenly going to come and invest in like 80s vintage deals in crappy C-class neighborhoods. Do you think Blackstone got to where it is or KKR Apollo, all these big household companies that we hear about, right? These legends of the game. Do you think they got doing this because 
they were buying like C-class properties in like Mesquite or I don't know, because I live in Dallas, I can say that, right? Or whatever, some, uh, the ghetto in Atlanta. They didn't do that. They did it because they're buying quality product at a very cheap price and then they take advantage of this location. So people like you and me, and sadly, unfortunately, that money on the sidelines isn't really gonna help. But if you're a Brookfield, KKR Apollo, yeah, then it's gonna be really good for you. But that's just the way, that's just so, the name of the game, basically. Let's talk about the consumer a little bit. The, you know, different from the, um, the days of 2002 to 2000, you know, six, seven run up where real estate prices were going up by 15% a year, um, but incomes were only going up 3% a year. This time seems to be that it was on the rental side. So, you know, rent prices are going up by five, 10, 15% a year, but incomes are only going up 3% a year. Um, so people are starting to get tapped out on their savings. I'm, I'm in a lot of deals, both as an LP and a GP, and I've heard a lot of syndicators um, talk about how their delinquency has gone up and they're having trouble, you know, collecting from, and that shows that the base, the tenant base is having trouble paying, paying those prices. Um, on the flip side, you know, you, you hear credit card debt hitting, you know, peaks. But if you own your house, I believe there's still a ton of untapped equity. So the question mark becomes, do the owners of homes start tapping that equity to pay their bills and to pay their lifestyle? Or does something else, you know, have to have to give before before doing that. Look, Darren, I read the same stats as you do. Uh, apart from that, what I'm keep hearing is because with the student loans uh, uh, starting again, people starting to pay again. That's going to cause a big problem. Subprime auto loans, by the way, are delinquent at the same level or similar levels to heading into 2008, like how they were having. So these issues are going to fester. The problem basically is is that unfortunately what's happened in the past has happened in the past, right? We can't go back, we don't have a time machine. We can only take learnings we've had from the past and hopefully apply them for a better tomorrow. So in the example, as a company, we've learned a lot. All these things are going into our manuals for future reference. Similarly, if you're an investor, look, if you made some mistakes in the past, if you're a sponsor, you made some mistakes in the past, if you're honest, you're upfront and you confront the problem head on. That's all you can ask for. But going forward, don't make the same mistake. So if you're an investor, you think, oh, I've done all these screw ups. What happens now? Do I start tapping my home equity line of credit? No, reduce your lifestyle. Start saving more. Get into better habits right now. So as a consumer, you are not affected. Because let's be honest, most of the people we deal with in our business, they're accredited investors. They're not, they're not average Americans. The average American salary is whatever, 62, 65,000 a year. Most of us, by the grace of God, we're making way more than that very early on in our careers, maybe in the second, third year or first year. So our problems are not the same as the average American's problems. I mean, and I don't mean to sound rude when I say that. So the problems that afflict the average Americans, I don't think are the problems that afflict the average accredited investor. No, Hopefully so, they let, don't okay, so let's stick with the accredited investors. So say somebody, 
you know, bought a house for 500,000 or 600,000 and now it's worth a million, 1.2 million. So they've got, they, you know, maybe the stock market has been volatile going up and down. They're in some deals that aren't doing well. They see that, but they, they still feel like, holy cow, I just had this $500,000 windfall. My home price has gone up. I, I can't sell and go move someplace else because I'm going to give away my 3% interest rate and, and get an 8%. But I feel like I've got half a million dollars of kind of winnings of, of equity that I wasn't expecting. So how does that play out is, is kind of the question mark that I have is, is are people going to, like, for example, I saw, and I don't, I don't know that this financial institution has, has gotten any uh, traction yet, but there, this financial institution came up with like, like a debit card, credit card type of thing where you can swipe it and it goes against your, your equity on your house. And that is the right. most dangerous thing in the world. I think people well, back in the, do that. But that's that, what happened that, in, the, in the 2000s, you know, seven, the, you know, the great financial recession. The reason why people, so many people gave back their, their house to the lenders was because they were underwater. They owed more than their house was worth. Today, we're not in that situation. Today. Right. So exactly. That so that, that's what I'm I'm curious on. Does the, do people start pulling money out of their home equity to to maintain their lifestyle? Um, All I'm gonna say is, Darren, I don't know much about it right now. If it's this if it's just say for superficial reasons like maintaining my lifestyle, not like say a medical emergency or you know, some, at least what I feel are somewhat more legitimate reasons for doing this, then man, I mean, all I got to say is God help these people. Because if you're going to pull it out just to keep up with the Joneses, just because you want to, I don't know, buy a newer truck or get fancier clothes and yeah, man, I, I, I have it's, no words. It's, a, it's a hard one because you think of the person that bought the house at 500, 600,000. Say they thought they would only get, you know, maybe today they thought it was going to be worth 650. And, but, but now it's worth 1.2, you know? Darren, I thought I was going to play point guard for the Lakers, okay? And that never really happened. So, my, like I say, hearts have no bearing on reality. Hearts are hearts, man. I mean, you can think whatever you like just because you think you can fly doesn't mean you should go to the top of an office building and jump off. I'm in agreement. I don't think it's, I I would highly advise changing your lifestyle versus, you know, pulling money out of, out of your home equity. I would highly advise that you don't let your lifestyle dictate your life choices. It should be the other way around. But look, if somebody wants to go down that path for very superficial reasons, then look, I, I don't have any answers to that. I think that is just, you are playing with fire, and if you get burned, you have nobody to like bitch and moan about. So that's the question mark in terms of of timing. That's that to me is the only thing that is left. You know, it's and it's still a big kitty if you look at you know home equity in in the house that has been built up since COVID. You know, the the real estate run up. Um, you know, do people start tapping that? You know, or do they not? If they start tapping that. 
then they start getting to the point where if there is a drop in real estate prices, you could have a lot of people underwater again. Right now, I don't, I don't think that is the case. So I really hope that's not the case, but I mean, no, you I, might I be hope right. so too. I, I definitely hope, I hope that people don't get burned like they did, you know, back in 2007, 2009. Which reminds me of a really good quote I heard, you know, the difference between genius and stupidity is that genius has its limits. That's good. So what do you, what do you do now? What do you, what do you like, are, what's your kind of next big stretch goal? Do you have a, a stretch goal or you just look for opportunistic deals and you've learned how to be patient? First of all, I don't think I've learned how to be patient. I think it's a goal. <laughs> I am trying to teach myself. I'm not there and I don't think I'll ever get there with my personality. Look, I, <laughs> I, I love to. It's hard when you're, when you want to take action, right? It's hard to sit there and not do anything. Oh yeah. 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 It's really hard. Uh, I, I'm living proof of that. Look, I don't, uh, I'd love to say I have stretch goals of this and that, but, but look, by the grace of God, man, I got two young kids. They're both healthy. We got a great wife. We've got a How old? three and six, right? So For they're at a really great age also, right? They kind of want to cuddle with you, but they're also trying to, you know, find their own way. They've got their own friends and stuff. So I'd love to tell you my stretch goals are this and that, but a lot of times, this is something I'm even personally grappling with, uh, and not the grapple makes it sound like some existential crisis, it's not. It's like, what are the next steps? Because we can continue doing stuff as it is, and again, by the grace of God, it's really good because we've got a real estate platform. Another business that I haven't talked about is our QSR, which is our quick service restaurant platform. We've got a we're a franchisee for a couple of brands there, and our investors there make like 12 to 13% cash. We don't have any debt in that business. But for us, I've realized by experience and looking at other people's examples, oftentimes, you know, it's that old saying in the market, right? Bears make money, bulls make money, pigs get slaughtered. So don't be a pig, wait for the right opportunity to happen, but you have to keep looking for it also, right? You can't just sit on your laurels and things happen, but you have to be in the game. You have to keep looking. You have to keep meeting the right people, create good partnerships. Like, you know, we know each other now. Right. You have to keep doing that because you never know when a good opportunity is going to come. And when a good opportunity does come, what you don't want to do is then start scrambling and putting all the pieces together. That is a great point. I mean, so my son graduated college, uh, Texas A&M. He started his first job. He's here in the Dallas area. And I've given him advice to look at, you know, you're only a first time home buyer once, you know, Look to see if you can find a duplex, a threeplex, fourplex. Well, prices are really high. You know, a lot of things don't pencil right now. And I'm like, you got to keep looking. And I'm like, go drive by. Go talk to, you know, businesses around the area. See if it's a commute you want to do. And like some of that, he doesn't necessarily want to do unless it's a deal he really wants to go he into. He also doesn't want to do it because you're his dad and anytime your parents tell you stuff, you don't really know. That, that's, that's definitely part of it. That's definitely part of it. But the, the truth part is, is that like the more that he keeps looking and the more work he does, when that one deal comes that truly is good, yeah, he's gonna crush it. he won't hesitate. Oh yeah, he's gonna crush it. It's all pattern recognition at the end of the day. But look, that's all of it. So I'd, I'd love to tell you I have this goal or that goal, but I do feel like things are good by the grace of God, while times are tough right now for everyone, including ourselves. 
we we can only we only have control over what we do right we i don't have control over where the interest rates are going or how people are feeling or what's happening i have control over what actions i take and what my company takes and as long as we focus on the fundamentals we keep developing good relationships with the right people like yourself that's all we can do from our end that's huge so hey if people want to get to know you better what's the where should we point them to look you can join my mailing list by visiting my website boardwalkwealth.com uh, I think you'll have it in the show notes as well. The form is right on the homepage. Again, that's at boardwalkwealth.com. That's fantastic. Well, Omar, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I look forward to working with you in the future. Uh, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 